Thank you, worship team. Um, my name is uh, David Heinrichs. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community, and uh, I'm not the senior pastor, but I am uh, the preacher this morning. Paul is on a vacation, for those of you who don't know, and he'll be back in a couple of weeks. Uh, and this morning, before I read, let me just say a few words about this passage we're going to read. Uh, some of you might think that this sermon, uh, being about money, is the one sermon that maybe Paul doesn't want to preach, or no pastor really wants to get up and talk about our finances here in front of everybody and uh, try to bring up something that could be awkward or offensive. But that's not the case. We talk about our money all the time here at Christ Community. Um, and here's why. <laughs> it's the one thing that Jesus talked more about than any other topic. And if you ask the question, why did Jesus center his teaching while he was on earth more about money than anything else, it, 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 the answer is, is simple. The reason is because money symbolizes our heart's treasure. Where our heart is, there, that's where our treasure is, and vice versa. And so you know that all of your desires and all of your hopes is symbolized by the expression of how you spend and how you save your money. And in fact, all of your, our limited resources, your, your time as well as your energy. Re- let's remember 1 Timothy says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And so as we read Proverbs 23, we are looking at the foundation of many sins in our lives. So let's stand together and listen to the wisdom found in Proverbs 23, the first five verses, and also 17 and 18. Proverbs 23, 1 through 5. When you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist, and when your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Skip down to verse 17. We'll read those verses as well. It says, let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. You can go ahead and have a seat. Just take a couple of minutes to reflect on God's word. Well, as I thought about these first five verses in 17 and 18 as well, I realized that the problem a lot of us have with our money, is that we think way too much about it. If we are in debt, if we don't have enough money, we end up thinking about it and how we can acquire more of it faster. If we have a lot of money, as you know, uh, you think a lot about how you spend it and how you save it and the things you buy, how you manage those possessions. In general, in Scripture, as you can see, there's two general warnings about money. Generally speaking, it is about either spending, the dangers of spending your money, and also the dangers that we find in saving our money. So we're going to look at spending, and then we're going to look at saving, and then we're going to look at how the gospel changes everything, how the gospel gives us a new purpose for our money. So first, let's look at spending. But before we do, let's pray. Father God, as we come into your presence and as I begin to 
look at these verses with this congregation here this morning. Help us. You are so helpful to clarify things that are confusing to us, things that we're blind to, maybe things that are simple, but we just don't get for some reason. There, there might be a block in our minds. There might be an idol in our hearts, a desire that shouldn't be there. God, as your spirit comes into this place and we apply your word, we pray that you would bring encouragement, conviction, joy. We pray in Christ's name and to his glory. Amen. So first danger is spending. Another way to, to say, you know, spending, the word spending is consuming, consuming the things that our wealth provides for us. And the question before the house today is, are you a foolish consumer? Are, are you or have you ever been a foolish consumer? You can look and see what constitutes a foolish spender or consumer in verses 1 through 3. I'll read them again. It says, when you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you. And put a knife to your throat if you're given to appetite. Don't desire his delicacies for their, their deceptive food. In other words, the man that sits, you, you can see this table. And at this table of this rich ruler, all of these delicacies are present. All of these wonderful foods are present. And what happens to this man who sits at the table? Appetite. His appetite begins to grow, and he's instructed to do two different things. First, to observe carefully what's on the table. And second, to put a knife to his throat. Now, that sounds like commit suicide. That's what it sounds like. But all of the commentaries say that's not the intention of that verse. What that means is that your throat is growing, your appetite is growing so much that you, would, you should put a knife to it as you would a saw to a tree and prune it and, and, and trim it down. Trim down your appetite is the idea there. So be careful. Don't consume without thinking and diminish your appetite. For what happens if you, if you consume what's on that table without thinking and your appetite is great? What happens is that the ruler will expect you to do something out of gratitude for eating his food. In other words, you will be in debt in ways that you didn't originally calculate. Now, all of us have experienced this kind of debt. We've made a purchase that later on we look back and think, oh, wow, now I'm really enslaved in debt to this thing. I, I bit off too much that I can chew. I, I, I can't afford this. And what happens with this debt is our lives become enslaved. You can see this, right? You can see that, that if you're in debt, that you don't really have time for, for other things that might seem less important, like raising your kids, right? Or spending time at home or calming down and just taking a Saturday and taking it off. You have more important things to do. You have this deep urge and, and, and urgency to, to pay off that debt. And it becomes sort of your life in a lot of ways. Think, think about this. Who is the poorest among us? You, you ever think about that question? Who is the poorest among us? Is it the person with the smallest house or the oldest car or the least in their savings account? Consider Carolyn. I read a blog online 
of someone in New York who writes this. I currently have over 250000 worth of student loans, both private and federal. Most of this debt was taken out by my parents, who at the time thought they'd be able to pay it back. Unfortunately, with the economic recession, that was impossible. Despite the best intentions of my parents, I'm left with a crippling debt that cannot possibly be paid back since I'm a high school teacher. Every high school teacher goes, ooh, because <laughs> you know how much high school teachers make. At 29 years old, I can't buy a home. I can't start a family. I constantly have to worry about being able to pay my bills each month, and I often get behind and borrow money to pay bills, which just creates more bills. It pains me to think about how I could be contributing to society if I weren't, if it weren't for this horrible burden. Being in debt, that makes you poor. It's not the person with a zero balance. It's a person with a negative, less than zero balance. And think about that in your lives. Now, we're not talking about owing for a house or a car. There's a couple of things that might work, but but we're talking about this over-desire for the things on the ruler's table. Over-desire is really a good choice of words to describe what happens to this man as he approaches the table, as as his appetite grows and he doesn't trim his throat. Over-desire is actually the translation for epithemeo, which is a Greek word used 16 times in the New Testament. And, And themeo means desire. Epi means over, intensified, more than it should be. So we all can look in our lives and we can, we can see things that we desire and then we can see things that we over-desire. And that's the question that this scripture is leading us to, over-desire. I, I experience this every time, <laughs> every time I make a major purchase, whether it's a house, a, a pet, clothing. I mean, anything I could buy. I I mean, especially cars for me. This is my struggle. If I ever need a new car, I start off with a number in my head. And I say, I'm going to go out and buy this car for this amount of money. But then you know what happens. You start looking at AutoTrader, right? You start looking at Craigslist. And then you pass the dealer on the way home. You say, I'm just going to go look. I just want to see what those features are in these new cars. So you sit down. And this is what happened to me. It started with a, a small gas-saving car, and it moved to a mid-sized car that made me feel a little bit better about myself. And then it moved to the crossover, which, you know, the doors are a little higher. You can slide in instead of get down in. You know, and then, then it moved to, well, I know lots of friends of mine that have full-size SUVs, and they love them. So then I end up at a dealer with a used full-size SUV, and then the, the, dealer, the, the salesman comes by. And he says, well, you know, for the same money a month, for a payment that's not that much more, and he points. And then I drive it. And I'm like, this is it, right? And before you know it, I'm sitting in a brand new full-size SUV with payments. And nobody at the dealership is going to trim my appetite. That's not the way the world works. And if you go into the world and you don't observe carefully what's on the table, you'll end up just like me sitting in a brand new car. And you're like, well, this is way over my budget. But somehow I think I can afford it. And you jump into something like that. I'm not saying it's wrong to buy a full-size SUV. But I am saying there's a slippery slope that each of us has to confront. Now, at this point, you're wondering, you have a question. When is that for me? Because it's not the same for me as it is for you. We don't all drive a white 10-year-old car 
that's $8,000 or less. That's not the, we're not a communist society that way. We don't work that way, right? So what is it for you? Where can you look in your life and say to yourself, yep, that's an over-desire? So pause right there because that's really a difficult question to answer. But we're going to answer it eventually. That's when the gospel comes in. We would do well to remember what Dave Ramsey says when we think about the dangers of spending or overspending. When it is gone, he says, it's gone. So simple, isn't it? Here's another simple Dave Ramsey sentence. It's okay to wait. I mean, it's so simple. Don't buy things you can't afford. Actually, if you looked at some of these, you would say, yeah, that's, that, I know that. But do I do that, right? And the last thing he says is save more of your money. His philosophy has helped so many of us who are in debt. We're getting out of debt, right? He's, being, he's very helpful. And I'm so thankful for his, his philosophy. It works. But can we talk? The Bible doesn't just say there's a danger with spending, right? It also says there's a danger with saving. Look at verse 17 and 18. This is our second point. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there's a future and your hope will not be cut off. So what the author is saying is, is we could look at other people who are wealthy and then really based solely on that comparison, we begin to feel the discontentment with our own budget or we begin to fear in a way that we didn't before. Right. This comparison always confuses us. We fear being poor. We fear being homeless or, or being needy. Really, I think what we fear is we fear the day that we have to ask for help. We have to be dependent on others. We doubt that our future is secure, as it says in 18. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. We forget that. Instead, instead of fearing God, we fear our own poverty and we trust and depend on our savings now the key problem obviously is not saving in itself just like it's not spending in itself i think the problem here that we're all kind of getting around is this concept of extra excess more than what you need if you just the word extra if you just could define that like, what is that for you? Extra. Saving for a big purchase, that, that's one thing. Saving for a car, retirement, saving for college, those are big expenses that, that you need to save for. But saving extra doesn't fit, does it? Because what we do with this extra, what we begin to do is we begin to replace God in our dependency on God. So, Look at Luke 12. You don't, you don't turn there, but listen to these words. Jesus says, a certain rich man's land produced a very large crop. You hear the echo of extra, a very large crop. The man thought to himself, what should I do with the extra? I don't have any place to store my extra crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my old barns and build bigger ones. I'll store my extra grain in them. And I'll say to myself, 
You have plenty of grain stored away for many years. You see what just slippery slope just happens so easily when you have extra and you save the extra. You you begin to depend on it for many years. And he says, take life easy, eat, drink, and have a good time. But God said, you foolish man, tonight I, the one you're supposed to be depending on, I will take your life away from you. Do you see what's happening? The sinner is storing up things for himself that he can't possibly use today. He's trying to set himself up for years to come and thereby depend on his savings instead of the Lord. This is hard for Americans. This is at the core of American ideology. I think it's just the way that we think about our money. And it's so hard to, to get free from it. Here's really what's hard. How do you define extra? It's the same question. How do, you, how do you look at your life and say, no, that's an over-desire. I desire that too much. Same question, you know, kind of slightly different. What is the extra in your life? Well, thankfully, I have a, a document here with all of your names on it, and I have exactly what's extra for each of you. So this is what you're supposed to give. Just kidding. That's ridiculous. I can't do that for you. You can't do that for me. You have to do that before the Lord. You have to work and struggle to find what the extra is. If if you ever go to the doctor and they say, yeah, you're a little bit overweight, you have a little extra fat hanging off your body, they'll tell you, they'll tell you, which is what my doctor does. He tells you, he says, David, this fat is the body's way of storing energy. You you know, you you take in too many calories that you don't actually use, so the extra calories are just stored, and your body thinks for a later date. But it never happens because I keep on consuming too many calories and I never actually spend those extra calories. So I have a a savings account all over my body, right? It's just sitting there and it's not doing anything. It's very easy to see physically the extra in my body. And that's what we have to do to our budgets. And what is the solution to lose weight? To trim up our budget, so to speak. Stop consuming calories if you want to lose weight. And start spending the extra calories that you have. Stop consuming. You can see in verse 4 of Proverbs 23. Do not toil to acquire wealth. This word toil, it means wear yourself out. Is that what you're doing? Are you wearing yourself out to acquire wealth? I mean, is that the priority in your life? You see, these are questions that are personal between you and the Lord. You have to come to terms with it. Will God show you the truth in your life? Or will you forever live your life in confusion? Will you forever wonder, oh, am I spending too much? Am I saving too much? Am I working too hard? Is there, is there ever a day when you can achieve clarity on that, on that issue? And then the other side is that we need to spend the extra, as you define it in your life. If you, can, if you can point to a quantity that's extra, I think the biblical model would be to spend that. What does it profit a man, Jesus says in Mark 8, to gain the whole world, yet lose his soul? Okay, so let's consider the Witch of Wall Street. This is an extreme example. Her name was Henrietta Green. She was nicknamed the Witch of Wall Street. She lived in the, during the late 1800s. She was known for both her wealth and her stinginess. Her life was this. She, she uh, 
was a bookkeeper for her father in her father's business. And when he died, the entire fortune of his business, uh, $70 million in today's money, $70 million was left to her. So she came into $70 million. And she developed this life with only one goal, to grow the family fortune and not waste a penny. And she was known for not wasting. She, some of her friends tell stories like this. One night, she spent half the night looking for a stamp that was lost in her house. The, the stamp was two pennies, worth two pennies. Uh, another story says that she eats cold oatmeal for breakfast. She never turns the heat on in her apartment. She wears only one black dress and one pair of undergarments until they completely wear out. Washing that one dress when only absolutely necessary. She would actually just have people wash the hems and not the whole dress to save money. Uh, she would move from house to house to, to house to house to avoid residency, to avoid residency taxes. And she forced her husband and her daughter's husband uh, to sign prenuptial agreements, waiving their rights to her fortune. <laughs> and the most infamous example of her stinginess, uh, when her son broke his leg, she took her son to a free medical clinic where they botched the job, and later his leg had to be amputated. There's pictures of him <laughs> with his leg not there. Her husband left her. She died a lonely old woman, but rich. Now, I know that's an extreme example. The Witch of Wall Street. It is extreme. But do you see the point? Why is she saving? What's the point? To what end? And that question now comes to us. Listen to her. At the end of her life, she says this. For 40 years, I've had to fight every inch of the way. And when the crash of 29 came, I had money. And I was one of the very few who really had it. Remember what the rich fool in Luke 12, what he said to himself when he had extra harvest. He says, I have plenty of grain stored away for many years. That is not Christ's goal. That's not what Christ wants us to think. Let me prove it to you. In in the Old Testament, God led his people out of slavery in Egypt to the desert. He leads them to the desert and he says, I will provide for all your needs the way I intend to provide for all of my people's needs. This is a principle of me prov providing for you like I'm going to provide for the church, like I'm going to provide for you and me today. And what does he do? He, he rains manna down from heaven graciously. And in Exodus 16, verse 15, it says, When the Israelites saw this manna, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It's the bread of the Lord. He has given it to you to eat. And this is what the Lord instructs you to do. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Now, you're in that assembly. Moses says, This is what God wants you to do. He wants you to, he wants you to gather as much as you need. Half of us are going to obey that, but the other half of us, and this is the group I'm in, we're going to run out to the fields first, early bird gets the worm, and gather a little more than we need, just in case. And that's exactly what happens. <laughs> Listen, so the people did 
what Moses said, and Moses added, only take an omer, O-M-E-R, for each person you have in your tent. I don't know what an omer is. I hope it's this, but I think it was more like this. But an omer. And the Israelites did, did that, and they gathered, some of the Israelites gathered much, and some of the Israelites gathered little. And when they measured it by the omer at the end of their gathering, the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one that gathered little did not have too little. You see what the Lord did there? Go ahead and collect all you want. But I'm going to miraculously make your much just what you need. And your little just what you need. That's the way the Lord provides, isn't it? If you trust in God. The problem is your idea of your needs is not the same as God's idea of your needs. Your omer and God's omer. Usually that's how it works. Right? And some of us, just a couple of us, your omer is too small and God needs to grow it. But most of us, our omer is this big. And then Moses said to them, uh, he said, one more instruction. Moses said, no one is to keep any of this manna until morning. And, of course, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They rationed it because Moses promised, hey, tomorrow when the sun comes up, more manna will be there and you just collect for that day. You don't ration it out. But there are some people that didn't do that because they didn't trust in the Lord. They created, out of their omer, they created this category called extra. And they put their faith in it. And watch what happens. In the morning, it was full of maggots and began to smell. And so Moses was angry with them. Is this not the way that Jesus teaches us to pray? Oh, Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Give us what? Barn houses full of grain that we could look at and say, I will be taken care of for many years. No, give us this day our daily bread. And he repeats it. Give us this day our daily portion of bread. So look at your budget. You're responsible for this. Every Christian is. Look at your budget and decide what God's omer is for you. Now, how do you do that? I mean, you can ask friends, right? But a lot of times, this is where we're going. Our wealth blinds us. And the gospel clarifies what we're blind to. This is, this is amazing. If you look at the warnings in Proverbs 23 about how blinding your wealth can be, how many times in these verses that we read this morning does it warn us about not seeing what we should? Let's look at verse 1. Observe carefully. Why? Because you don't. You don't see carefully. You don't look carefully. Verse 5, when your eyes light on it, on this wealth, the idea is your eyes are just like springing up and light bulbs are going off and dollar signs. You know, you're, that's the idea of not seeing what you should. Verse 4, be discerning enough to desist from the toil of acquiring wealth. Be discerning. In other words, see what you can't see. Slow down. And then verse 3 is really the linchpin of deception. It says, do not desire his delicacies. Why? Not because they're luxurious, but because they're deceptive food. So it's astounding how deceptive wealth is. Let me show you two examples 
which are true for me because I just asked myself, well, how am I blind to my own wealth? Two, two examples of how you and I are blind to our own wealth. Our wealth, first of all, makes us blind to our own greed. If I were to ask you to raise your hands, if you think you're rich, how many of you would do it? You don't have to raise your yeah, I'm rich. <laughs> but if I said, how many of in this room are, are rich? Raise your hand, please. A lot of you would hesitate. I don't think very many of you would raise your hands, right? You don't really see yourself as rich. Maybe you do. Maybe you you would say, I'm okay. I have everything I need. I'm blessed by God, but am I rich? Well, immediately what comes to my my head is the guy who makes more money than me. There are people in this room that make ten times what I... So you kind of compare yourself to others. Now, of course, when you come back from a place that's impoverished, like say Haiti or another place in the world, and you see their poverty, all of a sudden it dawns on you, I'm rich. Well, I tried to do a little research on myself. I went to a website called givingwhatwecan.org. It's designed to help people give more to charity. And there's a calculator that when you plug in your salary, your household salaries, all of them, uh, and then you plug in how many people live in your house, when I pushed enter, according to this website... I'm in the richest 3.1% in the whole world. And my income is 24 times the global average. I don't feel that way. <laughs> Why don't I feel that way? Because my wealth has blinded me. Because I'm, I'm around you guys. And, and you and I are similar, right? And some of you make more and some of you make less. And I'm kind of in the middle and I feel good. And, and those of you who have more money than me, you have friends that make more money than you. And we all just kind of, you know, we don't ever really describe ourselves as rich. But maybe we are. Second way our wealth can blind us is to the consequences. The observe carefully on the table. We don't usually do that. If I were to hold up a ticket, let's say, of a lottery ticket that has all the winning numbers and will give you $20 million, who would like to own this? Now, the other side happens. Most of you would raise your hands without thinking immediately. I do. I want it. Yes, I'll take it. But if you think about $20 million instantly in your bank account, what does that do to your life? Well, first thing you're going to do is probably quit your job. I mean, most of us would say, hey, well, I don't have to put up with my work anymore. Now I can do things I like. So you quit your job and you lose all your relationships at your work. Maybe you build a new house somewhere else and now you're in a new neighborhood. And then you want to go out to the nicest restaurants because you can afford it, but your friends can't. And now there's an awkwardness. Do you pay for them and then they feel indebted or weird? Or, but, but then you get new friends who just look at your money all the time. And before you know it, all you think about is the $20 million that you now have. Maybe you lose all your friends. Maybe you have a completely different life. There was a couple of articles, one of which is named Jane Park and Her Misery. She's a lady in Great Britain, and she won the lottery. She only won a million pounds. It's $1.5 million in our economy. But she won it at the age of 17. Uh, and the article says, Ms. Park was all smiles when she won the lottery. At the time, she was making $13 an hour doing administrative work and living with her mom in a small 
housing commission unit. But then she splashed out on a Range Rover, designer handbags, and equally designer dogs. But despite lottery bosses giving her services of a financially, financial advisor, she found the win overwhelming. She says, at times it feels like the winning of the lottery has ruined my life. I thought it would make it ten times better, but it made it ten times worse. I wish I had no money most days. I say to myself, my life would be so much easier if I hadn't won. I never realized how difficult it was going to be. I moved to a nice house. I quit working my job. I didn't need to think about college, so I lost basically my whole life. I became known for only one thing, winning the lottery, and all my new friends wanted money. After a while, I felt so empty, and I began thinking about one question. What is the purpose of my life? You know, 2020 did a series called, um, it's called Lotto Hangover. Big riches, big problems. It's actually an hour-long show that they did. And And it describes how much the lottery can ruin someone's life. Did you think about that when I held up the ticket? A lot of times, wealth can blind you. Okay, so now how how can the gospel shed light? How can the gospel shed light? I think Randy Alcorn said it best in his treasure principle. He said a number of things, one of which is simple. Just like Dave Ramsey, real simple. He says, God owns everything. I know you've heard that before. Let that ring in your ears today. God owns everything. But second, God gives us everything as an inheritance once we die. When we die, we go to heaven. Streets of gold, emerald palaces, no tears, everything, right? Okay, then what is our life now, right now? Think about this. There are some limited resources you have, time, Energy and money. How much time did it take you to get saved? How much time did you have to spend working to accomplish your own salvation and entrance into heaven? Answer, none. How much of your energy did you have to expend serving and working and being righteous? The gospel is free. No time, no energy. How much of your money did it? Do you pay an entrance fee? No, you don't pay any money to get into heaven. So you don't use your time, energy, or money to get into heaven. Okay, on the flip side of that, not only do you not spend your time, energy, and money to get into heaven, you have time, energy, and money now until you die. So what are you supposed to do with that? Time, energy, and money. What is your life? And in the gospel... Your life begins to look extra. Now, when you hear that, do you walk away sad? Do you walk away like the the rich fool who says, I can't sell everything and follow you, and he walks away sad? See, this this is how the gospel can clarify in your own life what's extra. Everything is extra. Your whole life is extra. What are you doing here on on this earth? 
How does the gospel help you inform, inform you about, about how you're to live your life? You're perfectly fitted for heaven right now. You don't need to spend your time, energy, and money to get there. And you have this whole entire life given to you for what? For what? Let me show you what Jesus says to people who don't quite get this. Luke 18, he says, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. Luke 9 Still another said, Jesus, I will follow you, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus says, you're not fit to serve in the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 16, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Don't you see? The gospel allows you to see all of your life as tools that God uses to proclaim his kingdom, to save others. You see how inadequate it is to think, I will give my 10% to God and then spend the rest on myself. It's just in this light, in the gospel light, things are clarified. So, so I want you to think through that a little bit more. Think You and your life and your time and your energy is all for God. Now, I'm going to give you, um, I'm going to show you uh, an example. It's a two or three minute video, uh, the ending scene for Schindler's List. This is a a great movie. Um, It's really hard to watch, of course, uh, but it is the true story of a, a Czech businessman named Oscar Schindler who uses cheap Jewish labor to set up a factory in occupied Poland to make his fortunes during the war. As World War II progresses, however, and the fate of the Jews become more and more clear, Schindler begins to realize that every worker he hires is a life he saves from the death camps. And so Schindler's motivation changes from profit to human salvation. And he ends up penniless, hiring many hundreds of extra labor and is able to save over 1,100 Jews from death. This is very close to the perspective that the gospel gives us. Let's let's watch this clip real quick. As Hebrew from the Talmud, it says, whoever saves one life saves the world entire. If I made more money, 
I threw away so much money. You have no idea. If I just... Generations because of what you did. I didn't do enough. You did so much. This car. Good, what about this car? Why did I keep the car? Ten people right there. Ten people. And that is a picture right there of, I mean, I think what it's going to feel like to get to the end of our lives and see, look back over your life and, and, and see what you spent your time, energy, and money. And I, I want us to, to go there now. And instead of feeling guilty, I want us all to experience the joy. And you can experience that right now. The joy of just giving the extra away as God gives it. Again, I'm going to read a quote from Randy Alcorn. He says, God gives us more money than we need so we can give generously. And God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. And now we transition to communion. And this is a this is something that we do once a month. And as you come down the aisle, you're coming to face your Savior. And if Jesus is not your Savior, if you don't follow him, then, then don't, don't come down the aisle. You can just sit at your seat. But the rest of you who, who do follow Christ, come down and see your Savior who has given freely, willingly. He's given his body so that you can live. He has given and shed his blood as we pour the cup. We're we're reminded of his blood that he shed for us on the cross. So come this morning and experience the joy of what Jesus generously gave to you. More than enough so that you can then turn and be generous to others. The ushers will come by your uh, row and the music will play when they come by to dismiss you. Come up the aisle and the elders, you can come up on either side of me.